It's Isaiah's last breathing plea to anyone who might read or hear what he penned down, what he preached throughout his life, and what he left in the pages of scripture for us, his last personal pleading with us that we would receive the good news of the gospel that he has so faithfully preached throughout this book. Well, welcome back to another episode of our Midweek Musings. I'm here with Pastor Taylor, and we're excited to dig in once again into our meditation in the book of Isaiah. And Pastor Taylor, we hit a couple of different passages in Isaiah in the last couple of weeks, and uh, which passages did you preach on recently? Yeah, we are here at the very end of the book of Isaiah, and this past Sunday we brought the book to a close, Mm. but the Sunday just prior we looked at that majestic passage in Isaiah chapter 65 where God declares in verse 17 for behold I create new heavens and a new earth and so this is the passage where God through his prophet Isaiah is promising us a new creation and we considered the place that God is describing it's this self-same earth renewed and restored and and it is the new creation, we call it, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the place that God is promising for us. It's not this ethereal kind of um, spiritual realm that's completely distinct and alien from what we know, but it is this world that we know improved and restored and perfected, still in a sense far beyond what we can uh, imagine, right? So far more glorious and more wonderful than we can imagine, but not so different that there's no analogy for us to consider it. The analogy is this this heaven and this earth that we currently dwell in, but renewed and restored and improved. And then also in that same passage, not only is there a place promised, but a people, a new people of God, uh, gathered in from among the nations called his uh, heavenly Jerusalem, this city people of God that are called out of the world and renewed and restored Uh, to God, to praise him and to worship him and to dwell in that new creation. And then lastly, we considered the proof, the proof that this is a reality that these promises, which are grand and majestic, are actually true and will happen, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he is, he began the new creation through his resurrection. He has inaugurated the new creational life and power that Isaiah is promising here many years before Mm. in chapter 65. And because he rose again from the dead, we have the promise that he will raise up our bodies from the dead to dwell in that renewed and restored creation in the end. That's great, brother. I think that's a really important note to hit, the new creation language, because sometimes as Christians we we think about death and even a loved one going to heaven who believes in Christ and thinking that that's kind of the end of the story. But as you're reminding us from Isaiah, um, you know, this this present life and even dying right now and going to be with the Lord, while that is a glorious reality that we rejoice in, it's not the final state of, of our lives in this world that God is making a new creation, that he loves the world that he made, right? Yeah. He loves yeah. the material world and he loves our bodies and both our body and this creation will be resurrected by his power. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of mystery to what that new creation might look like in, in its continuity with this one. Yeah. But we know, as you mentioned, that God is making a new heavens and a new earth, and, and he's putting his people there. 
And so that was just such a good note to hit, I thought, in the sermon from Isaiah and getting to meditate on that new creation language that I don't think we think about enough in the church. I know it's something that I need to meditate on more, like the the glory of the new creation and how that fills Mm. me with present hope. Um, But what about Isaiah 66? And what were some of the things that characterize kind of the new creation in our life there? Uh, What was new that we found in Isaiah 66? Isaiah 66 is really carrying that same theme over and showing us that on the final day when Jesus returns in resurrected glory, he's coming back and there will be this final rejoicing of God's people. And Isaiah describes it in vivid language like the, as I mentioned in the sermon, not like baby blues or postpartum depression, but like baby jubilees or postpartum joy, Uh, these golden hours that an infant child has with uh, his or her mother there at her breast and just the comfort and the safety and the security that that image uh, portrays to us is what Isaiah is saying, that your joy will be so great and wonderful, the peace and calm and rest that you will have in in this new creation will be phenomenal and it's gonna be filled with great joy is what he's referring to. Uh, And so there's a lot of discussion about that. And the promise with that is that we will be those newly born children. Um, In a sense, uh, we've already been spiritually reborn if we believe in Jesus, born again by the Spirit of God. But there will be a sort of second birth with our bodies in the resurrection, right? And so Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he has turned our grave into a womb and I, refer, I referred to that um, that one time when I was in the hills of Santa Barbara watching my good friend and mentor being buried there in his casket and how the preacher stood over that grave and said, because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is not just a tomb or a grave. This is a womb because when Jesus returns, he will call Jameson Stockhouse mm-hmm. up from the grave in resurrected glory yeah. as one of the children of God mm-hmm. in the new creation. And so this is what is promised to us as well, that we will be the children of God forevermore in the new creation, enjoying that intimate time of fellowship with God for all of eternity going forward with great joy. That's great. Yeah, I I used that imagery when I was sitting down with my kiddos at lunchtime discussing your sermon. And I said, what did Pastor Taylor say about that grave? How is it transformed? And, And how you said because of the resurrection, it's transformed into a womb. I think that's just such a beautiful imagery because it's uh, it's a uh, it's it's put into the grave then with great hope, right? And um, and it's such a beautiful uh, image to think about. And it reminds me of what you mentioned, I believe, as well from Paul's words in Second First Corinthians fifteen and and our bodies being raised from the dead. And it mm-hmm. says, um, you know, almost like our bodies are like a seed put into the ground. Yeah. And, you know, a seed, when it goes into the ground, it it changes its form. It goes through a bit of a, a death process, right? Yeah. Even as Jesus says. Right. But then it, it comes up and it's and it's alive. And he says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body also. And just that 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 progress of how we put into the ground in such humility and in such weakness, and it's so humble. A grave, you know, funeral is a humbling thing to witness. But it's a 
it's with the eyes of faith that we see that grave for what it truly is for the believer. Like you said, it's a womb and there's there's hope to come. That's right. That's right. And, you know, this passage also shows us who are those that will be raised up in resurrected glory. In verse 10, it says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. Uh, that you may nurse and be satisfied. And so he's saying that all those who love Jerusalem, referring spiritually to the church, the church that belongs to Jesus, all those who love her, who share in her joys and triumphs with great rejoicing and also share in her trials and difficulties with great mourning and lamenting. And I think that ties into what we've been considering a bit in 1 John as well, right? One of the one of the key uh, litmus tests, the litmus test for a true believer is the love for the other brethren, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, that's what you see with the people here. It's those who love the Lord in his church. And yeah, for those in in John's day as well, the the litmus test that they are those who are in the light and not just professing a kind of faith in Jesus is that they actually love God and love his people. And, uh, you know, if we love Jesus as our head, we, we love his body here on mm. earth, right? Yeah. And we, we cherish the bride that he loves. And so, yeah, that's one of the biggest tests, I think, of a Christian believer. As Jesus said, they're going to know you on this earth by your love for one another, yeah. right? That you're going to yeah. be my disciples. So such an important characteristic. That's good. That's yeah. good. So we consider that first point, the final rejoicing, which is... Perhaps the emphasis that Isaiah is leaning on because he's yeah. trying to instill hope within us here at the end of the book. But then he also, as a good preacher, he gives us again kind of a final warning of the final judgment on that same day when Jesus returns, and uh, which will be the beginning of that final endless rejoicing into all of eternity with God in the new creation. On that same day, there will also come a final judgment against those who rebel against him and refuse his offer of salvation. And he speaks about it in the, in the language of fire, uh, this fiery judgment that will come upon them. And interestingly, in verse 17, I didn't mention this in the sermon. Uh, it says something a bit interesting. It says, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and abomination and mice shall come to an end together declares the Lord. And so it was actually your wife, Pastor Daniel Brooke, who asked me a question regarding this verse because I skipped over it in the sermon, just wasn't enough time to to cover it. But commentators and scholars look at this and say what Isaiah is describing here is pre-exilic description of the cultic pagan practices in the day. Mm. So they would often go into gardens, which were kind of areas of um, pagan worship, especially related to the fertility gods or goddesses of the day. And some of these practices of eating pig's flesh, abomination and mice, etc., these were common in Israel before the exile. And so it's, it's evidence here at the end of the book that this is this was likely written before the exile and written, therefore, by Isaiah. Yeah. There's some debate about these later chapters, whether or not they were written sure. by Isaiah. But this seems to lend credence to that view that Isaiah is the author here. And it's just interesting. Also, how it says, following one in the midst. 
um, it's sort of like this cult leader who yeah. is leading people astray. And we kind of talked, you talked about that a bit in the evening service in yeah. First John about the yeah. Antichrist, right? Yeah. It, we see yeah. here in Isaiah that one from among the Israelites is leading them astray into yeah. pagan practices and rituals, leading them away from God. And he's warning, yeah. don't follow such a person uh, who is, like First John would say, an Antichrist, opposed yeah. to the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Don't follow them because God's judgment is coming upon those who are found um, in such rebellion and disobedience against God and yeah. against his truth. Some interesting thoughts there. That's yeah, all. that's great. Yeah, that's uh, that was actually a portion I remember during the sermon. She um, said, "Hey, what do you what do you think this verse means?" And I said, "I have no idea. I wonder if Pastor Taylor's going to hit on that one. If not, ask him later, because <laughs> I didn't know." So I'm glad she connected with you, brother. Yeah, she she's uh, she's listening. That's I'm sure, right. I'm sure That's many right. are, and maybe some of the kids. So hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, maybe your question during the sermon was answered too. <laughs> good, good, good. That's great. How how is this text, brother? Um, in especially these last couple of chapters in regards to the new creation and what's being said here. How is this um, comforting your own heart? How is it correcting you? Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, as I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, Isaiah, he's so poetic and filled with so much hope and encouragement here at the end of his ministry as he sets his the eyes of his heart on the hope that is before him, which is also before us, mm. that hope. You can just tell it's like an anchor for his soul. And that's so important when we remember that his life ended tragically in a death where he was put to death by his own king in Israel. Yeah. And we, we see that even though he had this very hard, difficult ministry that God called him to, and he knew he was going to have a difficult ministry from day one when God called him back yeah. in Isaiah chapter 6, that the people weren't going to listen. They were going to be dull of hearing and stiff-necked, and they weren't going to turn away from their uh, idolatry to serve the living God. Mm-hmm. And yet Isaiah didn't lose hope. Um, he he kept his eyes on the prize of this hope that he is describing here, longing for the coming of the Messiah. And we live on yeah. on the other side with, where the Messiah has come, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And we are in the time period now of what he describes at the end here, that final gathering from among all the nations, which is a clear description of the great commission that Jesus gave us. And so we have this great comfort in the hope that that Isaiah has, it's set before us to press on in the midst of trials and difficulties and challenges that hope kind of pulls us through. And also the, the challenge to partake in participate in this great gathering this great commission that isaiah described and that jesus called us to yeah that's great i was going to ask you about isaiah's um, kind of legacy in his own life and how it ended and how that connects us and i think you're hitting on that in regards to his um you know his life and and, in the ministry that god called him to i think sometimes when we're reading the bible we forget that some of these authors and you know these prophets and the people in the new testament as well who wrote letters were real people right and who had real lives that they lived before the Lord, which actually informed as well the things that they wrote. Um, that's how we believe God inspired the word. He didn't use the people like robots, right? Or he like secretaries, but but God used their their story, their gifts, their writing style. And for Isaiah, God used 
him and in, in, in his ministry, uh, which was a difficult one and ended ended sadly um, in his in his own martyrdom. But with um, with this great hope that you're mentioning that he had throughout, that was his hope, and that he passes on to to us as well who are hearing the words of this prophecy. That's right. That's right. And when we think about Isaiah's hope and get really particular, he mentions here in verse 18 that they shall come and see my glory and I will set a sign among them. And this was another point that Brooke um, asked me about. And it was a good question because I quoted from the commentator Alec Moitier, who said that this must be the cross of Christ and she questioned what was the rationale behind that and in his commentary he doesn't really give it all that much Mm. Um, but if we go back to Isaiah chapter 7 towards the beginning of the book I think there's an inclusio happening here kind of bookends earlier at the outset of his ministry in chapter 7 Isaiah says uh, there therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's in verse 14 of chapter seven. And so there at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, we hear this promise that was given Mm -hmm. that the Lord will give them a sign, a sign of his salvation that even though Israel fails, that God will send a sign of his promised salvation which is his own son Emmanuel God with us and so it's most likely here at the close in verse 19 of chapter 66 that this sign set among them is that son of God um, the son of the virgin Emmanuel but in particular lifted up uh, lifted up so that through him being lifted up like John talks about in his gospel as Moses lifted up the serpent on the snake uh, so too the son of man will be lifted up and draw all peoples to himself and so Jesus himself is that sign and in particular I think his cross and his resurrection which is the culmination of his work his ministry his mission like John calls it the hour of his suffering the hour of his glory Uh, seems to be the sign that Isaiah couldn't see clearly, but now we can, looking back, say, yes, it refers to Jesus and his work on the cross Mm -hmm. and in his resurrection. That's good. Yeah, it makes me think as well of Paul's words in Galatians 3, where he says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, mm-hmm. kind of placard them before him. Yeah. And they more than likely didn't see Jesus physically crucified, but it was through the preaching of Paul that Christ was portrayed to them as that sign of what he has done, right? And um, yeah, I think that fits very well with Isaiah and with the New Testament and, and what, what Christ has done. And it's a sign of salvation, like Isaiah is saying, for those who accept the Son and rejoice in, in God and His people. Mm. And it's a sign as well of, of judgment for mm. those who reject Christ, that they will yeah. have to bear their own sins and, and suffer under the, the curse of God for their sin. And, um, and if they remain in unbelief, they remain in their sin. Yeah, and that brings us to the very last verse, which I didn't really touch on either in the sermon Um, even though it's tied in with the final judgment. But it says there, 
and they, referring to God's renewed and restored people, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's a very somber and solemn ending to his book, a final warning that's given. And it's sort of as if on the way to the festivities of the joy of worshiping God, there's a cemetery off to the side. Um, Metaphorically, it seems to be speaking here um, that there's a recognition that not all who went through this life or who live on this earth will end up in that glory with God and the new creation, that there will be others who will be cast to an eternal death where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. And that language, the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched, Jesus himself takes up yeah. in the New Testament in his ministry as the the symbolic way of referring to the place of hell. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we believe in a, a real new creation. We, we do believe that there is a place of God's judgment as well, which as Christians we call hell. And sometimes we get squeamish about language about hell because um, it could seem a bit outdated. But I think if we don't understand hell rightly, then we don't understand the gospel because Jesus went through hell for Christians mm. at the cross yeah. when he suffered the judgment for us, right? Um, that what we would have experienced for an eternity because of our sin, Jesus took upon himself at the cross as fully God and, and fully man and, and saving us from that, right? So it's just uh, amazing to think about what he went through for us, but also scary to think about if we meet God, who is this consuming fire, as we thought about, mm-hmm. without a mediator, then that's a scary thing, right? You don't want to be in contact with our son, the literal son, right? Without some kind of protection. You don't want to get up and close. And how much more the God who created the son, who is light, you don't want to stand before him without a mediator by yourself in your sin, right? You, you need Christ. And that's the sign that God has given that this side of heaven, we could take refuge in him and, and find in him a God who will protect us and save us and keep us. That's uh, right. That's right. And this last a verse here it's not isaiah and god's people gloating or being braggadocious over those who are have rebelled or those who refuse to submit to christ but rather it's isaiah's last sort of breathing plea to yeah. anyone who might read or hear what he penned down what he preached throughout his life and what he left in the pages of scripture for us, his last personal pleading with us that we would not end up in that place, but yeah. instead that we would receive the good news of the gospel that he has so faithfully preached throughout yeah. this book. Love that, brother. Love that. Reminds me of the the very end of the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Mm. Some of the final words that the Apostle John writes there in Revelation 22, where he says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And just that invitation as well to, to come and to enjoy the blessings of the gospel and the new creation that is spoken of there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, as we conclude, Isaiah, brother, as you finish up this book, um, how do you feel? You know, it's, I'm sure, a sense of accomplishment getting through such a, a big book that's really hard to preach through. Um, 
but I'm sure there's also some sadness when it comes to finishing a yeah. book of the Bible. And yeah. I want to just share a little bit about how it feels to finish Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. As I mentioned in the sermon, we started in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, back in January of last year. And we've come all the way to the end of the book. We s- skipped a few chapters here and there, but we hit the majority of this majestic book. And it's been uh, wonderful. And one major takeaway that I would say is that I'm now more keenly aware of how much Isaiah is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. In particular, uh, the Apostle Paul seems to be channeling Isaiah yeah. so many times in his letters and in so many ways. And it's just beautiful to see how interconnected and interwoven the New Testament is with the Old Testament, like the Psalms and like the book of Isaiah and Genesis, right? And to see that through the deep study of a book is a joy. And it's been, yeah, it's been a fun ride, so to speak, (laughs) through this book. But it also is sad, like you mentioned, to to bring it to a close. Um, It's kind of like uh, finishing up a really good book, like... The Lord of the Rings, and when I finished yeah. reading The Return of the King, I, I felt a bit of sorrow in my heart uh, to say goodbye to the story. Right? Yeah, and so I wanted. I found this this prayer written by Douglas McKelvey in his little book Every Moment Holy, which is about the lament upon the finishing of a beloved book, and it ties in really well with yeah. what we've seen in Isaiah too. So I'll read it for us. I am stirred and saddened, O Lord, in coming to this tale's end, to bid farewell and return now from my sojourn in that storied place where longings for something more than the life I lead were awakened. It is in the receding glow of that small bright sorrow that now I linger. Let it do its work in me, inviting me to dig beneath these fresh stirred longings to see that their roots are not at last a longing for the places depicted in these pages, but are in truth profound and holy wounds, yearnings for a lost garden in a more perfect city where justice and righteousness are restored and harms are healed and losses redeemed and love proved true and earth and heaven reconciled. What I feel is at its heart a homesick hope for a place of unbroken communion with my creator and with his people and with all of his creation. What I desire most is to open my eyes and find that for the first time in my life, I am home and breathing the wild winds of my native land. So of course my heart aches each time I receive these beautiful distant rumors of that far country. Of course, I do not want such a story to end for it has wedged open for me a way like a window through which I have glimpsed a vision of things more as they will one day be than as they now are in these hard and sorrowing lands of our exile. Thank you, O my God, for loving me enough that you would rouse my deepest desires again through story, appointing these longings as true signposts planted in a war-torn and cratered landscape, reminding me that All of history is leading at last to a king and a kingdom and pointing me ever onward toward his righteous and eternal city. May I return now from the world of this book 
to the daily details of my own life with truer vision and fiercer hope, trailing with me remnants of that coming glory I have glimpsed again in story. Amen. Amen. That's great, brother. I love that. And we thank the Lord for in his goodness and love for his people to give us the prophecy of Isaiah to meditate on. And as you mentioned in that prayer, to create in us some of the longings for that far kingdom, our true and eternal home. And I just love that, that language. And thank you for also faithfully preaching through this book for us, the hard parts of Isaiah and the woes and the judgments, but also the glorious mountaintops of Isaiah and the wonderful hope that he holds out for us. And it's a faithful plotting through a book. So thank you, Pastor Taylor, for doing that for us as well. well. And thank you as well for during the Advent season for bringing us through some of the glorious mountaintops there, the uh, servant songs. Those Those are nice. It felt very seamless uh, to have you come in and carry carry the torch as we made our way through the book of Isaiah. Yeah, thanks for letting me share it because sometimes when you're preaching through your own book, it's kind of a precious, you know, it's my precious, you know, (laughs) don't touch it. So (laughs) it's kind of nice, but it was really a blessing to share that together. And so, brother, as we come to a close and uh, have all of this in our minds and our hearts, what's what's a good response for God's people? One of the best responses to seeing by faith the glory of God revealed, like in the book of Isaiah, is to respond with doxology, which is a word of praise or a song of praise. And uh, we were considering together two songs before we um, started this podcast recording uh, that really tie in with a lot of these themes that we find here at the close of Isaiah. And so first we'd like to share with you a song by the Grey Havens called Far Kingdom. And so we'll play that for you and we'll chat a little bit about that. And then if you're still listening, we have another song as well to share with you at the close. There is a far kingdom away from here Beyond the storm and the sea There will be no need of darkness And none for tears When that far kingdom I see There's a river we will know Ever clear and ever full From the fount that overflows In the light of the King And when we drink it We will find That this joy ever full Will ever rise And it'll rise on In the kingdom In the kingdom There is a Far kingdom on the other side of the glass and by a faint light we see still there is more gladness longing for the sight than to behold 
or be filled by anything. There's a river we will know, ever clear and ever full, from the fount that overflows in the light of the King. And when we drink it, we will find that this joy ever full will ever rise, and it'll rise on in the kingdom, in the kingdom. And there is a far, far kingdom there at the end of the Love that song. I first heard it just a few years ago when I was pastoring in Canada, um, and it always stuck with me. And I love just the opening lines about how um, there's a far kingdom away from here, beyond the storm and the sea. There will be no need of darkness and none for tears when that far kingdom I see. It just reminded that the new creation is being marked by light, and um, that in that new creation there is no more no darkness of night no more dark nights of you know sadness no tears and just um that the light of god himself will be the light of the new creation Mm. and just being reminded that that the light of god's presence and its countenance shines on everything that is there and that we actually reflect that to one another as we reflect the glory of god in that place and it's just a beautiful description of that light and joy that marks the the far kingdom but what are some lines that stand out to you brother beautiful yeah those are fantastic and yeah one that i'm looking at right now is where he says that this joy ever full will ever rise and it'll rise on in the kingdom Mm. in the kingdom so this description of joy always full like a full cup like uh david says in psalm 23 right where he says my cup overflows um and it will always be full and always rising this joy it will yeah. never fade uh the glory of that place because it's the glory of god will never fade mm. and also in the next stanza he says that there they will know my name and until that far kingdom far kingdom calls me home my soul i will wait 
And that ties in with what Isaiah says in the end of chapter 66, verse 22, where he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Mm -hmm. So we have this promise that as surely as that new place that God is making will remain before him, so surely will our names be remembered by God forevermore yeah. uh, in that place with him. Mm. It's a great joy, and it uh, really sets our heart's hope on that far kingdom, which is coming for us yeah. as Christ returns. Now, what's the other song that we're going to close with, brother? Uh, the other song is Almost Home uh, by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. And it's a beautiful song that sets our hearts on the new creation as well. Great. Well, we'll play this song for you, and we thank you for listening. And next week, Lord willing, we'll bring you some more midweek musings as we begin this Sunday a new sermon series entitled, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) That's it. What is it? What is this life? Meeting the living God. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It came to me after. <laughs> right. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Let me see. Let me see. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Okay. Well, as you just heard, everyone, our new sermon series is Meeting the Living God. And so stay tuned. Next week, we'll bring you another Midweek Musings, Lord willing. Now enjoy this song. Don't drop a single anchor, we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home The promised land is calling, we're almost home And not a tear shall fall, then we're almost home Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come Turning back, we're almost home Almost home, we're almost home So press on toward that blessed shore Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home This journey ours together
just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home.